Welcome to our first episode of the Artsakh podcast featuring Gavi Skadjian, Executive Director of ANC Artsakh, and myself, Hago Pipjan, Advisor to the President of the Republic of Artsakh. We will be your hosts. The aim of the podcast is shedding light on the ground realities and ongoing developments, and most importantly, continuing to share the stories of the resilient people of Artsakh. We are currently on day 251 of the blockade. So for our podcast, we're going to uh, focus it in several different segments. Uh, the first five, ten minutes of each podcast, we'll be doing a rundown and an update of what's going on on the ground here in Artsakh. Following that rundown, following the update, we'll be bringing on various guests that can shed light on many layers of society and some of the things that are happening here in Artsakh. Uh, to give a start with a brief rundown, I think it's important to start post-2020. After the war in Artsakh, uh, we saw the development of various pressure points upon the populace of Artsakh by the Azerbaijani regime. Uh, significantly with the inaction, with the imposition of the blockade uh, about eight months ago. Uh, during this blockade, Azerbaijan has cut off the gas, the electricity supply line, and our only route connecting us to Armenia and essentially the rest of the world. Uh, what does that mean? That means that food, medicine, and all the other supplies that any population needs to be sur- to survive has been uh, deprived for us from Artsakh. These past few months uh, have been incredibly difficult for the people of Artsakh, as many of you guys have been uh, paying attention. We've seen uh, recent deaths. We've seen uh, pressure points on various segments of society. Um, and we've seen the people of Artsakh uh, go through much. The people of Artsakh are incredibly resilient, we know this, uh, but no population should have to go through this. And during the direction of this podcast and the coming podcast, we're going to be shedding light on this situation. Over 1,800 citizens in Artsakh uh, could not get necessary medical equip- medical treatment due to suspended surgeries, and around 3,900 people, including five. 550 children have been separated from their homes and families as a result of this blockade, some of which have been able to return with the help of the ICRC and the Russian peacekeepers. About 17 times fewer vital goods have been imported, just to give you a perspective. 5,715 tons have been imported instead of the 100,400 tons just in the 251 days. Uh, more than a third of businesses have stopped operation and about 17,000 people have lost their jobs and income. Unemployment rate has significantly increased. Multiple construction projects have been halted, including roads, water lines, apartments and infrastructure. Artsakh's economy has lost around $475 million due to the blockade, leading to more than a 53% decline in the predicted GDP. Uh, yeah. And if I can you know, add, I think it's important to note in, uh, that we don't get just lost in all these numbers and facts and figures, and that's partly why we want to do this podcast in sharing the personal stories, sharing the story of Artsakh. And in, you know, when Hagop is talking about the, the number of people that are uh, unemployed, the number of people that are facing health difficulties, the number of people that are facing malnutrition, uh, we have to look at this all from the context of attempted ethnic cleansing which is what Artsakh is fighting against today on behalf of the Azerbaijani regime. Uh, that's why today we thought that, you know, Kiram Sepanyan can join us. I'm thrilled to introduce our guest, 
Kiram Stepanian, uh, who brings a wealth of experience to our conversation, formerly a lecturer at the Department of History and Political Science of Artsakh State University. Kiram has taken on a significant role as the Human Rights Ombudsman of the Artsakh Republic since March 25, 2021, following his election by the National Assembly of Artsakh. Join us as, he, as we delve into his insights on history, political science, and his important work in advocating for human rights in the region. Kiram, thank you for accepting our invitation. I would like to start by asking, how would you categorize what's going on in Artsakh right now? People use terms like ethnic cleansing and genocide. How is it applicable to what we see today? Um, first of all, thank you very much for for uh, this initiative and I think that it will be very important for bringing uh, the voices of Artsakh and uh, and speaking about um, the uh, existing realities from the uh, human perspectives and uh, to uh, societies of different uh, countries as much as possible. Uh, as we are uh, mainly using two terms uh, for describing the situation in Artsakh, ethnic cleansing and genocide, I think that we should look closely uh, what are the meanings of those uh, terms. And first of all, we should speak about the ethnic cleansing, which is uh, not a specified term in, on the international law. And uh, there is no precise definition to this uh, uh, a concept or uh, acts that can be cate- uh, can, can be qualified as ethnic cleansing, but the UN Commission of Experts mandated to look into the uh, violations of international humanitarian law uh, in the context of former Yugoslavia described this term as a purposeful policy of one uh, ethnic or religious group uh, designed to uh, remove. Uh, by violent means, the uh, civilian population of another ethnic or religious group. And what we witnessed uh, since the November 22 ceasefire, uh, the deliberate uh, shootings towards our civilian communities, the killings of our civilians in their agricultural fields, the um, disruption of uh, critical infrastructure, the usage of loudspeakers for intimidation of our population, and many other steps are speaking about the uh, continuous, uh, systematic, and uh, purposeful policy of Azerbaijan for the reason of removal of Armenian population from Artsakh. Adding to this, the uh, statements coming from the authorities of Azerbaijan and especially from the president of this country uh, calling on the uh, people of Artsakh either submit or to leave Artsakh, we can conclude that, uh, of course, the uh, tools that were being used by Azerbaijan since the establishment of ceasefire are speaking about the policy of ethnic cleansing. The term genocide has, uh, is uh, a purely legal word. It is uh, it has its def- definition under international law, and it is defined by the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of a Crime of Genocide. And it is a composition, or it comprises five acts uh, of uh, a crime, uh, killing the members of the uh, uh, specific group, racial, national, uh, ethnic, religious group, uh, the uh, causing uh, mental or uh, physical harm, uh, imposing uh, living conditions for the destruction of the group, uh, preventing births, and forcible um, 
transferring forcibly transferring the children out of the group so uh, um, we see that with the blockade which has been going for eight months uh, the uh, we should speak more about genocide rather than ethnic cleansing because the starvation, malnutrition, and all the deprivation that our people are going through and are speaking about genocide. And we're seeing all this now, as you know, uh, now moving yeah. to day two hundred and fifty-one. Uh, every day that passes uh, in Artsakh, we're seeing evidence of all that. Yeah, yeah, we 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 are dealing with uh, not with the genocidal intention of, of of a certain country of Azerbaijan, but we are uh, we are dealing with ongoing blockade, and this is uh, in fact the conclusion that was made also mm -hmm. by uh, one of the reputable uh, specialists in the international uh, criminal law, uh, the for founding. Uh, prosecutor of for the, the ICC uh, yeah. for yeah. the for the ICC and I completely agree with him uh, and I think that this blockage should be qualified as a genocide and should be punished by the international yeah. community with the usage of uh, all the mechanisms defined by the convention and I think you know uh, Geram mentioned something important here and it's something that we don't uh, necessarily often see in the visual imagery that that comes out of Artsakh but when people define genocide or ethnic cleansing through the lens of violence we have to keep in mind that forced starvation is violence uh, keeping people from having a land route from the freedom of movement that's violence uh, keeping people from medical care that's violence that the the violence that we're talking about that is being enacted today is not necessarily seen through the prism of guns and tanks all the time though they do shoot into Artsakh very regularly uh, they're doing it through a silent means and and uh, Correct me if I'm mistaken. This is also part of their plan uh, to try to do this through a means where systematically, yeah. systematically but in, in a silent capacity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, of course. And uh, of course, uh, this is why Ocampo mentioned that they are weaponizing starvation mm -hmm. and they are using uh, starvation as a weapon for, for committing genocide. And it is not... Uh, uh, it is defined by international many documents saying that yeah. yeah these kind of actions are also crimes and they also should be punished i think he did the opening on the second directive if i'm not mistaken yeah. and he tried yeah. to explain that you know uh, that constitutes genocide yeah what's happening now in Artsakh, you know if we give the simple interpretation of the second directive yeah. That's genocide. Not only uh, he, uh, Ocampo, is speaking about this, but uh, many other, uh, especially uh, specialists in, in this field, uh, Lemkin Institute just yeah. yesterday yeah. made a really statement so. saying that we were speaking about genocide uh, two years ago, uh, uh, alarming the international community that uh, Azerbaijan is planning genocide mm -hmm. in in Nagorno-Karabakh and uh, other uh, other scholars in uh, genocidal studies also are, are, are insisting on this. Come on, I wanted to ask it, you know, taking it a little bit differently, how has the international community responded to the situation in Artsakh in terms of addressing concerns about the ethnic cleansing and genocide allegations that, you know, we're putting forward because, you know, at the end of the day, yes, it is evident, but uh, how is the international community responding to all this? Uh, at this point, we can say that we have only statements and uh, expressed positions by human rights organizations, but, but by uh, different individuals, uh, reputable uh, individuals on the in, on international level. 
but we have no uh, real actions taken by decision mm-hmm. makers of different countries on on in dif- uh, different international organizations with uh, actions that should and must be taken in order to prevent or in order to stop the uh, ongoing genocide in in Artsakh. Uh, You know that the UN Security Council meeting uh, was held uh, and we we witnessed the positions taken by different countries. Uh, We had expectations of uh, having more solid and more uh, exact naming of the situation, but uh, unfortunately, yeah. uh, this uh, didn't happen. And I think that this is this speaks to the core of the bulk of the work that the Human Rights Abundsman's Office is doing. The government of uh, Artsakh is working on, and you know our ANC offices around the world. It's how do we go from a place where we see statements and condemnation, which look, it's a good start. Uh, oftentimes, when there was days that we didn't have that either. Yeah. So for them to outright say that Azerbaijan is uh, committing a campaign of ethnic cleansing or, or they're purposely blockading and starving people, that's a good start. But how do we go from uh, statements to tangible action? And by tangible action, we mean punitive measures. When is Azerbaijan going to lose something? When is Azerbaijan going to face a repercussion for trying to starve off and cleanse 120,000 people? And, you know, uh, I want to hear uh, some of your thoughts. I know we mentioned the UN Security Council meeting, but was it, did it meet expectations? Did it fall short of expectations? Or can you only grade that through the prism of what each country said rather than the whole of the UN Security Council? Um, I think that in general we can... uh we can say that it was important to to bring this issue to the attention of UN Security Council and in some ways I think that uh, it was overdue. Mm -hmm. Um, The Security Council that is responsible for the maintenance of peace and security uh, worldwide should have uh, paid more attention to to the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh and to the situation uh, with the blockage of Lachin Corridor. Uh, earlier, but however, uh, I think that we had three main uh, main records made during the uh, uh, meeting of the Security Council. First, uh, firstly, I think that it was important to mention that uh, Nagorno-Karabakh conflict exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is it is discussed once again internationally, and it is not an internal matter of uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, you know that Azerbaijan has been trying to uh, present that there is no Nagorno-Karabakh conflict; that the issue is closed. With uh, they they uh, resolve the conflict with military means, and today we should only speak about post-conflict realities. But the speeches that we heard during the meeting uh, argued. And otherwise, saying that uh, there is still uh, conflict and sides should uh, resolve the conflict by peaceful means, by negotiations. Yes, I think what you mentioned, uh, it's important to create that all that evidence, all that paper, you know, uh, those transcripts, all that, because later on, you know, we can use that. Even yeah. the reports that you prepare, you know, uh, via the ombudsman every, you know, uh, yeah. couple of months and etc. At least now, uh, we've got something that's we can use in the future more tangible something that you- of course every every document every such kind of discussions are very important which we include in our reports in our uh, 
daily work to 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 build up yeah. our next steps especially in lieu of the fact that you know one one difficulty that i've noticed being here in Artsakh is that we don't the blockade isn't just keeping out you know food medicine and supplies but it's keeping out observers it's keeping out uh journalists. In general, yeah. so yeah the information that's come out of Artsakh i've noticed has been uh from Artsakh by Artsakh yeah. um and and to present that on an international stage as you said and to have that documented as a transcript of time and history is going to be very important because we have nobody else doing it for us right yeah. and that's a big bulk of the work that you guys carry out in your office as well yeah you are completely uh right and even during the security council meeting uh, we saw that the representative of ocha said that they have no any kind of uh, sources for validating the information and the only source is the icrc and i think that this is uh, also a failure of the un that uh, during these eight months has no any representation in in, mm-hmm. in artsakh has no any independent source of information from from artsakh and uh, and, and i hope that uh, this uh, uh, after the UN Security Council meeting, they will uh, think about that, having their uh, independent source, ha- having their representation. I think even the reports from the ICRC are sometimes incomplete or, you know, uh, it feels it feels sometimes that they're even biased, uh, you know, biased not to our favor, though. They're not trying even to be neutral in any way. We've seen it uh, through my work, you know, and through your work as well, you've seen it, I'm sure, that, you know, uh, I, th- I believe that the ICRC needs to do a lot more than what they're doing. Uh, I think so, uh, even uh, um, especially taking into account that they are the only international organization that are functioning in, in Artsakh, and they also bear responsibility to report about the mm. situation on the ground. Uh, if they do not want to do so, they then they should ask uh, other international organizations, UN, saying that, you know, people are asking me, demanding from me to to report about what is going on, but it is not under my my mandate. So Mm. I I ask you to, I request your assistance for having such kind of representation here for reporting about the situation. Their statements are always very, very much uh, neutral, very uh, Watered down, Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and um, they say that this is the way that they are working and this is the way that, uh, this is the way of working that ensured 160 years of their existence. As someone who has been born and bred in Artsakh, uh, you've seen the war, you've lived through the blockade. Uh, what can you say about the whole Artsakh society today and what is it, the state of the people? Especially after the 2020 war, we found ourselves in a very difficult situation. And especially the generation that was born after the 1991, after the establishment of uh, the uh, independence of uh, of Artsakh. Uh, It is really very difficult for us because we uh, gained, we we received the uh, independent statehood as granted, uh, if you can say, Mm -hmm. uh, because... uh, uh, our childhood, our uh, life, uh, in, in during our life, we we uh, always know that um, this is the Republic of Artsakh, and 
this is our free and independent homeland and uh, there could not be any any uh, uh, um, uh, any other reality but uh, since after the war especially uh, during this blockade uh, we are going in a, uh, through a very difficult uh, psychological uh, challenges do you uh, think do you think that shattered you know sometimes i think like uh, when when you live as you said in a republic that you call home that you think is free and independent and, and one that you might think is free and independent forever right uh, just by its given nature do you think that shattered some people's expectation or, or that reality that they were living in that, you know what, there's a chance that someone might take this away from us? Yeah. Like when you were growing up, did you ever think that that would be a possibility? No, we didn't think about that. We caught that with paid. I mean, the uh, our yeah. uh, mm -hmm. victims, uh, the lives, the of, lives yeah, of generations, ensured for yeah. us independence and free homeland for, for uh, centuries. Mm -hmm. But today, I always repeat that there is a huge gap between our identity and the reality that we, we live. Mm -hmm. Our identity always strives to the values that we were brought up. Victory, uh, homeland, uh, and many other important yeah. values. But the reality dictates us to feel and experience something very different. This is, uh, this is why we are... Uh, psychologically very very in a very vulnerable situation mm. and uh, adding to this the deprivations and sufferings of this blockade and uncertainties with the future of our uh, uh, homeland uh, so um, this is the reality that today Artsakh people live uh, of course with the hope that with the help of all Armenians mm. uh, and with the help of uh, the Republic of Armenia and our friends in uh, different countries we will be able to overcome and to ensure our existence, our uh, Armenian, uh, uh, to ensure the existence of Armenian Artsakh. Um, okay, you know, you, I agree, you know, I agree that, you know, I can see it in the everyday lives of people, you know, that it's very difficult, uh, you know, because let's not forget the pressure that's on the people of Artsakh, because uh, let's let's face it the only victory that the Armenian people have had you know mm. the, it's Artsakh so the, the whole pressure lies on the people yeah. here to maintain that so you know uh, I think look I think that pressure gets tougher too you know what I noticed yesterday I was walking down the street and there's a few high-rise buildings right that we were building for displaced people uh, from the war from Shushi and Hadrut and that was the first things that I saw when I first came to Artsakh about a year and a half ago that like there's so many people in need of housing that we are in this uh, resurgence rebuilding phase of Artsakh post-war and then that was paused by the blockade mm. and I think that that does something psychologically to say that okay look you know we know the next few years are going to be tough because we have to rebuild and then the Azerbaijani regime comes and says no 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 you, we're not even going to let you rebuild the unhoused stay unhoused that process of healing that mm. process of regaining strength we're going to cut them off and I think you know I think that's something that the Azerbaijani regime noticed I don't think they expected and this goes to the resilience and the strength of the people of Artsakh you face a war, you're completely besieged, uh, you lose 70% of your territory, and the vast majority of your population comes back to live in Artsakh. Yeah. Uh, I think that took them by surprise, and I think mm. that's part of the reason uh, that they're inflicting this blockade, because they thought, 
you know, the war is happening, the Armenian people on their own will leave Artsakh, uh, and they didn't. And then they didn't during the blockade. So if you notice, every month they make the blockade a little tougher. Yeah. One month they cut off the gas, another month the electricity, another month complete access. Um, just a few days ago, the internet. Uh, just to add up on what you just said, Kev, um, you know, just figures-wise, yeah. uh, over 30% of uh, you know the people after the war were IDPs so yeah. suddenly you know the cities and everything you know they've had to cope with that over 30 percent that had to move into the cities and you know I think uh, yeah the reconstruction could have been faster better and everything or every, everything could have been better but you know in hindsight it's easy to say but I think the government has done quite a good job you know trying to uh, find the housing build the yeah. housing and etc to to be able to accommodate all those yeah people. it's not necessarily a knock on the government i'm i'm speaking to uh what does that do psychologically to a people mm -hmm. that are reeling and waiting to get back and i believe you guys might know the statistics better some of the psychological implications of how many kids need to see psychologists how many people are going through that is is jarring today yeah msf has uh, has released a report which you know it's quite troubling you know the, the numbers are quite troubling now but I think, you know, with, with the help of, uh, you know, different actors and et cetera, we'll be able to kind of, you know, deal with that as well. But, you know, it's going to leave its mark. This blockade yeah. will leave its mark. Um, I just wanted to ask a follow-up question on what you were talking about, uh, Kerem. Uh, how have the people of Artsakh been coping with the challenges posed by the prolonged blockade and the impact it's had on their daily lives? And, you know, overall well-being, we kind of mentioned that. But, you know, if you can just dwell in it, a little bit you know you know people um, come to your office you talk with a lot of people and etc so you have a better insight the situation is really very very hard for for ordinary people in Artsakh people who especially for the vulnerable groups of our society uh, I mean uh, people with disabilities uh, uh, people with chronic diseases uh, children uh, elderly people uh, there are many many social problems in uh, connected with this uh, with uh, with the blockade uh, they are approaching us they are asking for help they are uh, bringing different uh, complaints and we are trying to be to support them as, as as much as possible but we also should consider should uh, understand that having no imports from uh, outside and being deprived from any kind of humanitarian access for uh, more than two months also it is it is uh, really very difficult to find some food or to find necessary medication and to mm. provide this to our people uh, i can say that this situation cannot be uh, cannot last um especially we we are reaching to autumn and uh, winter and we will have uh, we will not even have the product that we are uh, producing locally i mean the um, fruits vegetables that we pre produce now locally we will just we will not have that yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and uh, adding to this the uh, problems with heating yeah uh, problem with uh, not having uh, gas supply uh, and having only very limited electricity supply will uh, will really uh, make a humanitarian catastrophe. And I think, you know, what gets lost in 
especially the last few weeks, we've seen an uptake in, in media attention, which is good. But it, that coincides or runs parallel to the fact that things get worse. Yeah. And that's why people... Um, but one thing, like, every time I speak to a journalist or, or a media outlet uh, from the outside world, the one thing I try to put at the forefront of their minds is, look, you think this is tough. It's going to get worse yeah, and i bust. think that's and fast and i think that's what needs to be at the forefront of every discussion every conversation that we have with the outside world in that yes there's starvation malnutrition all of those things these are the good months right yeah. there's going to come a month where we can't harvest anything where the gas supply due to yeah. like the lack exactly. of heating is going to lead to hypothermia it's going to lead to people dying and we're going to see it exponentially increase and i think this is something we have to prepare armenians around the world for that it, it gets tougher we have to in a sense prepare our own populace yeah, here for yeah. and we have to make sure that the international community isn't desensitized right the mm -hmm. media outlets and stuff like you guys think one or two cases of malnutrition is bad it, it is going to get yeah. heartbreaking in the winter i think we were talking yeah. about it yesterday when yeah. you've got such a big uh, you know the groups of population that belong in that vulnerable group you know yeah. being the 30,000 children the 28,000 you mm -hmm. know elderly the eight to nine thousand you know um, people, people with, dis with, with disabilities you know you've got already about 50 percent of your population and maybe more that you know they're in that vulnerable group and with winter yeah. coming you know the situation will deteriorate really fast uh, that's that's you know what the international community needs to understand and that's what the, the messaging from us from you know from the diaspora and everyone needs to be that this is the good months the bad months are coming and we're already in mid-august yeah yeah and the intervention by the international community is needed day before mm -hmm. i mean uh, uh, of course we were speaking about the humanitarian consequences of the blockade during these eight months but i think that as particularly uh, especially during these two months they started to understand that we are approaching to the critical point mm -hmm. and it is and we also uh, see this uh, by the reaction of international media they are they are now speaking more about the situation they are paying more attention and i think that it will help us to uh, finally to have to ensure any kind of international intervention uh, and um, assistance from international community yeah um, look uh, on i think that um, and I'm, I'm very happy about this that so many people in the diaspora are now familiar with you and your work though i'm not happy for the reasoning behind that because it's, it's been you know partly due to this blockade that you've served in a capacity uh, in essence as a spokesperson for the voice of the people of Artsakh naturally because you speak English you're, you're you know a young man that's come up in, educated in the diaspora you have the capacity to do these things but uh, I want uh, you to kind of shed some light on what in light or let's say in the absence of a blockade and the campaign of ethnic cleansing what would a human rights abundsman do anywhere else in the world that you know <laughs> your job has gone from you know preventing this mass catastrophe and and, and you know spreading this word uh, across the globe but what is the human rights abundsman's office what were you guys doing before you know this calamity uh in general the main mission of human rights ombudsman uh 
in different countries, in peaceful countries, <laughs> yeah. in, not in conflict zones. Uh, the, the main mission is the protection of human rights from uh, the violations that come from state and local uh, self-government self bodies. I mean, uh, to protect human rights internally. Mm -hmm. And that's why many ombudsmen uh, even do not understand why we are so engaged in these kind of activities because they, they have only experience of working uh, with internal issues, with issues that... Against uh, the government. Yeah, against the, the government and against... Uh, but, uh, but would you say like our standing is like if we don't have a state, a government and a people, we wouldn't even be able to carry out the work of the uh, Ombudsman's yeah. office, yeah. right? Of course, the uh, Ombudsman's mission is also to speak about mass violation of uh, mass mm. violations of human rights, and this is what we are uh, doing. We, uh, what we have been doing is uh, especially starting from 2016 after the. Uh, for the war, war yeah, for the, war. Yeah, for yeah. the war uh, with the appointment of uh, Ruben Melikian who was yeah. also very active in uh, preparing reports speaking about the uh, crimes that are being committed uh, by Azerbaijan against Artsakh people during the 44 day war we, we, uh, we published more than 25 reports uh, covering the uh, war crimes committed by Azerbaijan uh, bringing facts about the violations of international humanitarian law, uh, international human rights law, and uh, speaking about um, the also about the armenophobic uh, mm -hmm. policy, or policy of armenophobia that has that is a state policy, state sponsored policy in Azerbaijan. Uh, this is uh, uh, actually what we uh, are doing preparing reports messages letters presenting to the and international can you, organizations can you tell uh, i think it's an important interjection here for those listening at home or for journalists tuning into the podcast where can folks find that information if i want to pull reports from the human rights abundance office if i want to get day-to-day -day updates on what's going on where can i find that on our official website artsakhombus.am awesome yeah uh, all and, and also we are very active on social media facebook twitter instagram we are putting uh, everything about our activity and uh, also these reports are uh, the links to these reports are available on our social uh, media accounts uh, but yes I, I i always mention that i dream to to be an ombudsman of a, in 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 a situation yeah. <laughs> where the only thing is to protect the rights of people uh, from uh, from state and local self-government bodies. Mm -hmm. And I hope that one day it will happen uh, and uh, one day we will have... Uh, our main mission will be just uh, to monitor the situation. It won't be an existential yeah. issue, right? And, you know... To, to, yeah. to educate human rights, it is also yeah. one of the priorities of uh, Ombudsman's Office worldwide. But uh, unfortunately, we have completely different priorities and we are fighting for ensuring the right to life uh, of our people. Yeah, I, I think, you know, that's a that's a great segue into our next and, you know, uh, our final question. And I think this is something that's 
near and dear to all of our hearts, Hagopenai, as, as diasporans that have moved here, you who have dedicated your entire life to the, the service of Artsakh. What does the future hold for Artsakh? Um, where are we going? And who do you think is going to take us there? Oh, very, very difficult uh, question. I can say that, uh, unfortunately, now we the future of Artsakh is not only... Uh, um, is a matter also of geopolitical of the clash of geopolitical uh, interest of different superpowers or different regional powers we see that the engagement of Turkey uh, is an, a factor of instability in the South Caucasus uh, and many things are changing and to say how we know what we want, but mm. we, we can't say what future holds for us. We will resist, we will continue our struggle for ensuring our Armenian Artsakh, for ensuring independent and free homeland for, for us and for our children. We, we will go through the deprivation and sufferings uh, to, uh, to uh, keep the dignity of Armenian people high, but uh, we know that... Uh, with this uh, very very diff in this very very difficult situation, no one can say what will happen. Yeah. Of course, uh, I w I want to be as sincere as possible. Uh, we should do everything that depends on us. We should uh, uh, put every effort to uh, to ensure the. Uh, well-being of our country for overcoming this blockade and uh, so on but at the same time we should understand that uh, we, we should take into consideration the geopolitical realities and try to uh, adapt our policies to, it's to naive, these realities it's naive to, to think that we exist in a vacuum obviously that uh, there are geopolitical and world powers at play here. There are things beyond our comprehen comprehension, beyond our grasp of control. Um, but one thing I would say, and Hagop, I'd like you to add on to this too, is that the, do the things that we do control. Yeah. How, how long can we uh, survive here? How long can we resist? How long can we last? Uh, I think that is going to speak to the core of what happens. I don't know what tomorrow brings or the day after, and things change every single day. But in a hundred days, one of those days might be beneficial for us. And, and the only way that we see that beneficial day is that we last, is that yeah. we survive, is that we endure. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, on the resilience part, you know, yeah. it's everything to do on that. And we need to be resilient. We need to keep going. Uh, you know, we can't stop. We can't give up. Um, and you know something that the diaspora needs to continue doing and you know some do do it better than others it's continue putting pressure we need every single armenian continuously putting pressure on their governments on different officials on different locals that being you know even the simplest thing talking or sharing on social media that's every every little helps first thing that we need to do something that, that i heard you know uh, on a seven point thing uh, you know uh, if you like, map that uh, was was written down one day was do not damage. The first thing that we need to do is do not not damage Artsakh. You know, uh, yeah. we need to continue working. We need to continue putting pressure, and I believe that's what the diaspora needs to to mm -hmm. do. We need the assistance. We need the help. Uh, this blockade needs to be lifted one way or the other. And you know, when we're talking about facing <coughs> massive world powers, we're talking about facing a 
genocidal enemy at the door with a populace of 10 million people, oil resources, wealth, and a military that's uncomparable to ours. That's the basic state. The, our only source of survival is found, one, within us, and through the collective strength and synergy of the global Armenian population. If we can say is, like, if we ask ourselves, what is one resource we have that many in the world don't have, mm-hmm. that Azerbaijan might not have, that Turkey might not, is our global power. Um, and our salvation lies in uh, activating, using, and utilizing uh, that global yeah. power and those resources. And again, uh, you guys have resources at the door. Connect with the Human Rights Abundsman's Office for reports. Uh, Hagop's office is working directly with the government. Uh, ANCAs around the world are working on these issues day and night. There are avenues, depending on where you are, which uh, you know point of attack that you want to help from, there are places that you can get involved. There was a famous French quote that said, if I have not fought for my country, at least I will paint for it. So if you're a painter, paint for it. If you're a writer, write for it. If, if you know, you're an engineer, come help us design things. There's, an, there's a way for every single Armenian, every single diaspora, and everyone around the world to contribute to the long-term success of Artsakh. And to our non-Armenian friends, of course. You know, we need your help. Yeah. You know, without you, yeah. we won't be able to do this. Of course. Absolutely. We are always speaking about Armenians, but we have many uh, non-Armenian friends. No Armenian, uh, yeah, and allies, and we also should uh, always uh, appreciate their efforts and always uh, continue to ask for their help. Yeah, I want to extend heartfelt gratitude uh, for sharing your valuable insights and your personal experiences today and being with us on our first episode. Um, special thank you goes to Artsakh TV, Artsakh Public Radio for providing us with the platform to have this important conversation. To all our listeners, we sincerely appreciate your time and attention. We want to let you know that this is just the beginning. We're committed to this podcast journey, shedding light on the ground realities and ongoing developments. And look, we Hagop and I moved to Artsakh to bring Artsakh closer to us. But we started this podcast to bring Artsakh closer to you guys. Um, and that's what we're going to work on doing diligently in the coming weeks and, and months. And uh, we want to do everything that we can Above all, to tell the story of the people of Artsakh. Thank you. Thank you, guys.